I've known our speaker, Mike Myers, both as a student at Greenville Presbyterian Theological <clears throat> Seminary and also as a fellow laborer in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the Presbytery of the Southeast. It's always a joy for us as professors when we see the men that God had been pleased to entrust us with do well on their ordination exams and in front of committees. But it also brings great joy to our hearts when we see them prospering in their ministries, when we see them participating in presbytery. And yes, Michael won the pop-up award last year at General Assembly, even in our General Assemblies. I wasn't quite, I couldn't quite remember what year Mike graduated. And so I asked my wife and she said, well, she wasn't really sure. And then I asked two other women who are wives of graduates, you probably can figure out who one of those were. And what surprised me was they, they figured out he graduated in 2013 by deciding on when certain of their children were born. <laughs> Mike serves as the uh, alumni representative on the board of Greenville Theological, Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and it's a joy to uh, have him bring God's word to us today. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your grace and mercy, your sovereign care over the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we confess with all of our hearts that we know that you are a God who works all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose, that you are a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, but is an ever-present help in the time of need. And so, Lord, we would pray for our brothers and sisters, especially in the Ukraine. We ask that you would put your hand upon them, that you would draw them close to yourself, that, Father, they would have a sensible awareness of your presence, even in this difficult time that they are experiencing. We know, O oh Lord, that your word goes forth in power and never returns to you void, but always accomplishes that which you send it to do. And, Lord, we give you our praise and honor and glory for your kindness to us as your people. Father, there is much we don't know and much we need to learn. And so we pray that you would use this talk this afternoon to open our eyes and our minds to the truth of our Savior and of, in Jesus in deeper and broader ways. That, Father, you would convict us, that you would exhort us, that you would comfort us, that you would mo motivate us in our Christian life and walk. And we do thank you and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our opening hymn is selection number 46C in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. 46C.
standing for the reading of God's holy word. Turn to the word of God, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll read verses 3 to the end of the chapter. Notice Cliff Blair's booster seat over here. Need to move that. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll read verses 3 to the end of the chapter. We'll be focusing our time on verses 20 through 21. Hear now the word of the living God. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called And have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That you keep this commandment without spot. Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. Which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be glory and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are a weak people. Lord, we're weaker than we know. And we bless your name that the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you, the everlasting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you remain with your people. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your spirit. Lord, how we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your glorious Son, whom you set forth to save sinners. Would you please open to us your word now, minister to us, uh, for the sake of your Son and for the good of your church. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I do wish you a good afternoon. Uh, As the token alumni speaker, I don't know if it's our plight to be given the after-lunch session. But Charles Spurgeon uh, once lamented the sad condition of the post-lunch preacher. He said it was difficult to prepare the soul, especially as the dinner is a necessary but serious inconvenience where a clear brain is required. He said, alas, roast beef and pudding lie heavy on the hearer's souls and the preacher himself is deadened in his mental processes while digestion claims the mastery of the hour. Well, my hope is uh, that the Lord will enable us all to not only stay conscious, uh, but profit as we consider his word. To warm you to my subject, I'd like to exegete for you my title. Some of you have asked me, well, what is this pastor's plea? Well, if we look at those three little words, a pastor's plea, uh, first, this little indefinite article It just communicates to you that I'm really no one in particular, yet one of many set apart to serve the living and true God, the King of Kings, in word and sacrament. I'm a pastor. What I understand by that is, by God's grace, I've been given an office, and that office carries with it responsibility, an office that many of you share, and an office from which all of you need to derive great benefit. The vows of my office, in part, include that I am to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity, peace, and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise on that account. It is incumbent upon uh, the office and responsibility of a pastor to maintain, to guard, whether by defense or whether by offensive or offensive proclamation, through godly conduct to do the great work of guarding that gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm also here to give you a plea. And I want want you all to understand what I mean by a plea. I don't stand here as one helpless, begging for your agreement as if my joy and life depended upon it. I don't plead to you as one with a groveling uncertainty. But I want to plead to you as a sergeant would plead to his beloved soldiers who are taking a beachhead to get up, to recognize what the stakes are, to take up arms, and to engage the enemy and fight. Fight for family, church, nation, God. I'm a pastor. And I want to plead with you today to listen, to recognize our present situation, especially to take courage and to seek faithfulness to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ in whatever sphere God has placed you. Our text uh, this afternoon is 1 Timothy 6, verses 20. And 21. And in this passage and in this book more, 
uh, broadly, what Paul is doing is instructing Timothy and by extension all ministers how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, uh, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. The book talks about various things. False teachers needed silencing. The gospel of grace in Jesus Christ needed proclaiming. Officers needed examining and equipping. Timothy himself as a young man was called to teach, to live, to read the word, to preach, to exhort. And Paul, as Timothy's spiritual father, as he brings this letter to a close, is brimming with desire and affection for his spiritual protege, for his son according to the faith. O Timothy, he says, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. What I want to bring out to you from this text is one basic principle, which I will do under four heads, make them clear as we go along. I want you to know from this text that servants of Jesus Christ must guard the gospel against all assaults by striving in the confidence of grace. All servants of Christ must guard the gospel against all assaults by striving in the confidence of grace. Now, I do intend this for all servants of Christ. All of those who have professed His name, all of those who have that glorious triune name placed upon them, who have a holy obligation to love God and to follow after Him. But I do have a particular desire to plead with my fellow office bearers in the church, particularly elders, ministers. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're here and you're going to listen to some of these things and you have been listening to some of these things, some of the, some of the tactics and some of the uh, threats that I'm going to outline, I want to warn you, they will absolutely overwhelm you. If you're not in Christ today, the onslaught of Satan and the attacks of the world and the deceit that comes upon the world as an act of judgment will engulf you. And then you will find yourself standing on that great day with no mediator and no protection. And I would urge you from the beginning, right now, to bow the knee to King Jesus. To receive Him who died for sinners. And find in Him life everlasting and hope in this life and for the next. But my fellow pastors and elders and my brothers preparing for the ministry, I want you to understand that as we think about these things, you who would take upon yourself or would take up the responsibility at God's call of the work of the ministry will have a serious weight placed upon you, a serious responsibility that is heavier in degree. So I want to open up a few things to you. I'm going to be relatively brief on the first and second we're going to spend almost all of our time on the third and then uh, conclude, round it out a little bit with the fourth. I want to show to you, first of all, from the text, an earnest desire. An earnest desire. Paul here says, Oh, Timothy. Paul's heart toward Timothy was one of sincere love, one of 
uh, fatherly care, this manner of address, this little word, oh, and just let me make one aside. If any of you listened to Dr. Ian Hamilton's pre-conference lecture, I promise you I finished my lecture before I got here. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm just recognizing that as I've reflected through the years, his teaching has impacted me greatly. He did mention the vocative O, but anyway. He says, O Timothy, he, he has this desire to see his son, whom he loved in Christ, succeed and be faithful. But you see, Paul's desire for Timothy was not focused upon Timothy merely as an individual, although he certainly loved him, but also because in Timothy's faithfulness, there would be a broader benefit to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, with respect to Timothy, knew the sober reality of the seriousness of the battle in which his son, in the faith, would engage. And as a tender and firm-hearted general writing to one of his most capable junior officers, Paul expresses deep care, but also solemn admonition. And his care for Timothy overflows then because of Paul's longing for the church. The church, God's, God's holy institution. No, I would never presume to place myself over you as Paul was over Timothy. But I want this earnest desire to course through everything I'm going to say to you. I am not taking Paul's position, but Paul's affection for each one of you. And let everything I say be interpreted through that lens. So first, an earnest desire. Secondly, Paul gives an urgent command. An urgent command. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding a variety of things, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, urgency does not mean being frantic. Urgency does not mean being uncertain. But rather, as Paul gives an urgent commandment, he is in deadly earnest. Timothy had to guard something. Guard something of exceeding great value, unparalleled value. The language here in the New King James Version, guard what was committed to your trust. It's a translation of a one word. It's a word used in several different places in Paul's letters. What is this thing that was committed to Timothy's trust? What are we talking about? About what does Paul express such affectionate and urgent concern? Well, probably the most helpful uh, parallel text, if you, go back to, if you go up to 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 and 14, there Paul writes, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. That good thing is something belonging to another that has been granted with the proviso of careful protection. Perhaps I could explain it this way, what Paul, to what Paul refers is essentially his way of saying what Jude said about contending for that faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And not only generally, but the, the crown jewel of that faith, the heart of that faith, the gospel itself. Dr. George Knight, now glorified, once wrote this, Here the deposit that Timothy is to guard is set in opposition to the false teaching and is most likely, therefore, the Christian faith itself. I'm willing to be a bit more dogmatic. 
than my venerable former professor. This is the Christian gospel. What is that deposit? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as the heart and soul of the Christian faith generally. And therefore, the directive that Paul gives to Timothy is guard this. Guard it with care and diligence motivated by the value of that thing committed unto you. Here's a question. How do you guard the gospel? Timothy, all ministers, all elders, all Christians by extension, first must guard the gospel by knowing the gospel experientially. By knowing the gospel experientially. The gospel is no mere set of propositions, be they so ever logical and lofty. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Timothy's call to guard the gospel is to guard that glorious message of his Savior, the glorious truths of Jesus Christ, the great prophet who comes to sinners in their willful ignorance, the great priest who comes to the spiritual leper and can cleanse him, making the phallus clean, Jesus Christ, the glorious King of kings, who subdues the rebel soul, bringing him into service. You cannot begin to guard the truths of the gospel if you have not grasped him who is the gospel in humble faith. You cannot begin to take a stance in defense of the Lord Jesus Christ until you have recognized the worthiness of him who is the Lamb who is slain to bring sinners into everlasting glory. It is through Jesus Christ that entrance to the Father is granted, that the fullness of the Spirit is given. You must know Jesus Christ, know the gospel experientially. And if you know the gospel, then secondly, you must obey the gospel diligently. The obedience of the faith, obeying Jesus Christ, not a gridded, a gridded obedience to a system of doctrine, but a wholehearted acceptance of the truths. And then the powerful living uh, reality of the implications and the applications of the gospel. A willingness to bear the reproach even of Jesus himself. You must know the gospel experientially. We must obey the gospel diligently. And therefore, with these things in mind, we must defend the gospel faithfully. We defend the gospel through prayer, pleading with God to make our hands strong for war. Pleading with God to pour out His Spirit that our words may not become dead letters, but living power. Praying that God would bless and that we would be wise in our conduct. And for the preachers among us, that we would preach with great power. I will say much more on that later, but suffice it to say here. The Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Often have I said to my brethren that the pulpit is the thermopylae of Christendom. There the fight will be lost or won. An earnest desire and urgent command. And by this point, perhaps some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? This is where I want to get to the substance of my address, the real matter I would like to put before you 
and plead with you about. Because thirdly, what we see is a deadly error. A deadly error. Contrasted to Paul's exhortation to guard this great thing committed to Timothy's trust, the gospel, is another commandment carrying a similar force to avoid what the text says, profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. One could imagine Paul writing in our day to a young minister, Timothy, avoid the babble of Twitter, the empty talk and nonsense endlessly proliferated in accord with the spirit of the age. I'm going to apply this prism of pathology to the current spirit of the age. Whether you want to call it critical social justice, cultural Marxism, applied postmodernism, progressivism, liberalism, critical theory, or on the more slang level, wokeness, whatever it is, these things are profane, idle babblings and contradictions claiming to be knowledge when it is not. These things, the ideology undergirding it, is an ideological cancer metastasizing its way through souls and societies the world around. And let me tell you something about cancer. I hate cancer. I detest cancer. The first person I baptized, I buried because of cancer. Two dear sisters I know have had their lives wrecked because of cancer. I hate what it is. I hate what it does. As many of you are painfully aware, cancer is a malignant growth. It is dangerous. It is rapid in multiplication and insatiable when left unchecked. And I think we could all agree that cancer is far more pleasant to prevent than it is to treat. I don't use this term lightly. It is the desperate need of the day for Christ's people and Christ's ministers and elders in particular to take notice, to take heart, and also to take ground for Christ's sake in the face of these things. I'm going to sketch out three things for you as we talk about this deadly error. First, I want to uh, briefly uh, explain what I mean when I talk about critical theory or wokeness. We're going to briefly explain the error. Secondly, I'm going to sketch out for you not the underlying ideologies, not all of those things. I leave that to people named Carl Truman. Uh, but what I am going to do is I'm going to point out to you some tactics so that you can say, no, I don't have to understand everything, but when I see you doing that, I know exactly what you're doing. So the error first, then the tactics, and then the response of the church. Now, initially, I had six tactics and seven uh, responses to the church, and I said, ah, Ethan Bolliard said, you need to cut it down, so I did. But then I heard Ian Hamilton, well, here are eight points, and then Dr. Grant said, well, here are ten points, and so I was like, whatever. But I'll be doing four and five. <laughs> First, then, this error. Let me tell you, error is nothing new. Calvin, commenting on this very text, said, These things are profane philosophies. Now read this in light of our day. Not in single words, but in that swelling language which is so constantly and so disgustingly poured out by ambitious men who aim at applause rather than the profit of the church. 
Whether it was the Romanism of his day, whether it's the humanistic enlightenment, or as a friend of mine calls it, the endarkenment of later years, or whether it's the rightly termed neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism of our day, it doesn't matter. What we do know is it's nothing good. Now, I'm going to quote several times through my address from James Lindsay. If you don't know, James Lindsay is an atheist. He's a brilliant mathematician and social critic. I quote from him uncritically in several points, but with this qualification. Guillaume Groen van Prinsterer was a Dutch theologian historian. He uh, gave a series of lectures uh, in the early uh, half of the 19th century. Uh, they got put together into a book called Unbelief and Revolution, which I would commend uh, to you. But he said this, We should not idolize pagan insights. Next to the gospel, they are mere glimmerings. But, the wisdom of many a pagan has put to shame the wisdom of many so-called Christians. Nominal Christians have hidden the talent entrusted to them, while pagans, amidst the errors and abominations of superstition and idolatry, have turned to advantage what remained of an earlier revelation. They never sank to the depths to which modern wisdom has brought us. I am fully aware that James Lindsay has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. I pray that he does. But his analysis is not only far better than that of many who have claimed to bow the knee to Christ, it is actually of great help uh, to many within the church. Now I'm going to read this definition and simply move on. I would at this point just commend to you a little book recently published by John Harris, not to be confused with Joshua Harris, John Harris a little booklet entitled Christianity and Social Justice. I'd commend it to you for further study on this. But James Lindsay defines critical theory or explains it in this way. He says, critical theory is a means of applying uninformed and cynical criticism to cause a social and political revolution. Their constant critical cynicism is a solvent that will dissolve our liberal societies if we let it. It is already dissolving them now. And critical theory can be applied to literally anything, absolutely anything. You do not even have to understand it. This is the truth about critical theory. I want to remind you, this is a pastor's plea. And so instead of delving into uh, the trenches of philosophy and ideology, here I want to set before you four different tactics so that you might recognize them, you might be able to see them, be aware of them, and then react appropriately to them. Four tactics of those enmeshed and uh, in the midst of this critical theory, or whatever you want to call it, ideology, the spirit of our age. Number one, deception. Deception. A simple reading of the scriptures should tell God's people from Eve to yesterday that they need to be on guard against deception. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he writes, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I could quote many more passages, but the very simple fact is, deception is an ever-present threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the pillar and ground of truth. Let me point out to you two methods of deception that are frequently employed and often misunderstood by the church. The first one is deception by way of vagueness. Vagueness. Language that is imprecise and easily misunderstood. Why, pray tell, is this language imprecise and easily misunderstood? I'm telling you why. It's a smokescreen of ambiguity that creates the cover of plausible deniability. This is what is going on. Dr. Grant quoted this earlier. I'll read it again. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things. If we would uh, transliterate that, it's the cryptic things. We've renounced them. The hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I am a reformed, Presbyterian, Calvinistic, true everything. I'm, I'm, I'm that. That's my creed. I love the truth. I love clarity. I cannot stand ambiguity. We would expect in theological debate the same kind of thing. That's not the case. Why? Why the vagueness? Why leave words open to interpretation? Jay Gresson Machen identified this problem 100 years ago in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. He was discussing the perversion of orthodoxy in seminaries and in universities. And he noted that in the private classroom, teachers and students alike felt less pressure, quote, to maintain an appearance of conformity to the past. In other words, behind closed doors, the hair comes down. We speak frankly, we speak openly. But he would go on and he said this, in the public eye, the religious teacher in his heart of hearts is well aware of the radicalism of his views, but is unwilling to relinquish his place in the hallowed atmosphere of the church by speaking his whole mind. Against all such policy of concealment or palliation, our sympathies are altogether with those men, whether radicals or conservatives, who have a passion for light. I want you to understand that there is an instinct in godly people to read things with a lens of charity. Vagueness and imprecision is not worth your charity. In fact, it is far more charitable to the church and to the flock that you are to defend to read things with exceedingly high suspicion and scrutiny. Vagueness, number one. The second is virtue signaling. Did you know David knew about virtue signaling? He wrote a psalm about it. Psalm 55, 21 says, The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Do you know what virtue signaling is? Virtue signaling is the deliberate use of virtuous sounding language to distance yourself from others. Not because of righteousness. But I believe more and more each day out of worldliness. Virtue signaling is 21st century street corner Phariseeism. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Misogynists, racists, homophobes, radicals, abusers. Virtue signaling is the publicizing 
of that which is culturally acceptable with the desire to earn the acceptance of culture. And let me also tell you something about virtue signaling. It's the right of initiation into wokeness. Be on your guard. And don't be taken by surprise. Deception is the first tactic. Second tactic, deconstruction. James Lindsay defines deconstruction as uh, a movement to take apart the existing order to replace it with a new order that's built from the ground up. Uh, my wife and I and our seven children live in a house that is a little bit smaller than probably what we could uh, desire, but we're thankful. And so recently we uh, took out a wall that uh, the 1970s people had strange architecture. I don't understand. I was born in the 80s. But uh, we had to take out this wall that separated our kitchen from our dining room from our living room. Uh, and so we removed that. Uh, and to do so, we used certain things like uh, a hammer and a sawzall and various uh, other tools. My children enjoyed it very much. But we wanted to remove this and replace it with something entirely different. The tool of ideological deconstruction is not a sledgehammer. It's not a sawzall. And in our present moment, it's not bullets or battering rams. Do you know what the tool is? It's the endless, constant drip, 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 drip of grievance. It's the acid of grievance that drips until it so eats away at your willingness to withstand it and eats away at the structure that is there so that when it comes time for the battering ram, you just need a little puff of wind. What's the method of deconstruction? Well, you hear different kinds of catchwords in our day. We need to disrupt, dismantle. Let me tell you, in Christian publishing, this is often cloaked with this rather innocuous sounding phrase. I'm just trying to have a conversation. I just want to ask a few questions. I don't want to get into an arduous long list of reading quotes. I was actually going to read several, but what I want to point out to you is simply the tactic here. When you're reading, if you're reading more broadly, people who are in this vein of deconstructionary publishing, whether we're trying to redeem this or get beyond that or saying that color is compromised or saying, really, you know what, there's still more time to care, even though the message is it's time to conform to the world. What you need to recognize is that the crosshairs is always placed upon the church, not the sinner, not the heart. It's the church. The goal here is deconstruction, not reformation, and it's high time that all of you recognize it. One more comment from James Lindsay, and this is going to link uh, our deconstruction thoughts into the next. Here's one of the things Lindsay said. He said, critical theorists understood that to tear down a liberal society, and by liberal he just means a free society, they understood that to tear down a liberal society you just need one thing. You just have to get a large enough group of people to complain constantly about how a society can be understood as unfair or unjust, as cheating them or somebody they care about, whether that is based on genuine understanding of the circumstance or not. They don't have to offer solutions. 
They don't have to understand. They don't need clear perspective of what they're talking about. They just have to air their grievances constantly and make everything they touch seem problematic while constantly demanding that it therefore be changed. And they know how to make this happen. Listen to this. Teach it everywhere and make it a moral imperative. And they do it really well. Which leads us to our third tactic. Discontent. Discontent. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his wonderful book, The Rare Jewel, oh, and it's a rare jewel, of Christian contentment, said, murmuring is but as the smoke of the fire. There is first a smoke and smoldering before the flame breaks forth, and so before open rebellion in the kingdom, there is first smoke, murmuring, and then it breaks forth into open rebellion. Friends, I think all of us are very much aware that we live in a sin-cursed world. Sinners wreak havoc upon the weak. Lives are shattered. Purity is stolen. Confidence and trust in the most intimate places can be betrayed. War destroys lands and families and nations. Ethnic enmity only intensifies that rage. Friends, this happens constantly. It's part of living in a world subjected to futility, which, by the way, happened because of our sin. And a grievance culture can only make it worse. Envy, sexual immorality, discontent, sinful fear. These are all things that grow natively in the heart of man. And an ideology that not only fails to seek to mortify these things, but then also legitimizes these things and then incentivizes these things and eventually weaponizes these things can only lead to absolute, our fourth tactic, division. It's division. This is both a tactic and a result of those enmeshed in this kind of ideology. This is why the present push of critical social justice and wokeness and all these other things, this is why this must be called and can be called neo-Marxist because it seizes on anything that can cause division and exploits it. Black, white, male, female, rich, poor, gay, straight, my umbrage to the former term gay, it's a good word. I was taught that by a good professor of mine. Satan knows as well as any that a house divided against itself cannot stand. A family divided against itself cannot stand. A church, a nation. Division is an age-old tactic. So, what happens? Exploit an occasion of heinous sin. Take abuse, for instance. And it happens. And it's evil. And it's wicked. But if you can exploit an occasion of real heinous abuse, and then make that threat one inherent in all positions of authority, then you get to teach the congregants, suspect your elders, suspect your ministers, be wary of those. And then we get back to the deception and the deconstruction and the discontent. It's a vicious cycle. 
You can attempt to shame people for their privilege instead of encouraging them to generosity and industry. You cause those who are without to envy instead of teaching them before the, grace of, by, before the face of God and humility and His providence to be content and to work hard. You blame people for the sins of their ancestors. Never mind the sins that plagued your own. Friends, this ideology stirs up division. And it's one of the cardinal reasons the church needs to see it for what it is. Because God hates. God hates those who sow discord among brethren. But he blesses those who stand for peace. The end state of all of this is destruction. This is what Paul discusses here. He says, these are things that are profane and idle babblings, contradictions, what's falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Young people, children, you who are here, let me, let me tell you something. It is no small thing to stray from the faith. This is a word used earlier on in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. You want to know what happens when you stray from the faith? You don't just stray at the beginning if you look down at verse 19, it says, We need to have faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. I promise you very few captains have ever set out on their ship saying, Oh, I want to make shipwreck today. But also, also, the cataclysmic event of shipwreck is something caused by decisions made miles ago. Don't stray from Christ. The end state of all of this is destruction, entirely mindful of the promises of Christ, entirely believing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That doesn't mean that there won't be local expressions of it that are raised to the ground because of appropriating these kinds of ideologies. I say this respectfully, but this is so obvious, even an atheist knows it. James Lindsay, in a conversation he had with Michael O'Fallon and Peter Bogosian, a professor from Oregon, they were discussing this. I'd highly recommend those discussions. It's called The Trojan Horse. You can look it up. Peter, Bo Peter Bogosian said this, If I were going to design a plan to bring the whole thing down, all of Christendom, how would you do it? And James Lindsay quotes, Make them woke. It will eat itself from the inside. Those are your tactics. Not exhaustive. I think accurate. Simple enough. Deception, be aware of it. Deconstruction, resist it. Discontent, humble yourself before God and be grateful for what God has given you and seek righteousness. Division, fight for unity and purity and peace in Christ's church. How should the church then respond? How should the church respond? How do we guard ourselves and our flocks from this? Well, Robert, not canceled Dabney, said once, He said, doubtless, during this long and tremendous conflict, we will see the same thing repeated which we have seen in recent decades. Timid and uncandid minds, anxious still to ride a fence after it is totally blown away by the hurricane of anti-Christian attack, attempting to reconcile op opposites by various exegetical wrigglings. What should the church do? Five things that I would recommend, commend to you. First, Come to clear recognition. In other words, open your eyes, recognize what is happening. There's a war on. 
And Satan has no rules of engagement. Do not be ignorant of his devices. And more importantly, do not be ignorant of the fact of his presence and his hatred and malice toward Christ and his church. Machen once wrote, a church that tolerates within its borders the polite paganism of the world, a church that cries peace, peace when there is no peace, is a church that is ready to die. If you look at the contours of your own church, I'm in the OPC, I can talk about my own, and let me tell you one thing, I cannot stand it when OPC ministers are like, oh, the PCA is terrible, and the PCA is like, oh, the OPC, no. We all have enough problems. Enough of the smug satisfaction at your own condition. This is the great battle of our day. And yet you should be encouraged. Richard Pearson, as he was reflecting on Psalm 76, verse 10, he's a 17th century man. 76, Psalm 76, verse 10 says that God will use the wrath of man to praise him. And he said, what more truly beneficial, therefore, or tending to the divine glory than for God to make use also of the opposers of his truth to rouse up his servants, whom he sees growing more remiss and negligent than they should be, and to suffer such temptations to assault them by which their drowsy minds may be spurred on into a greater love and zeal for the truth. Response number one is come to clear recognition. This is the spirit of the age. It's not the only battle of our day, but it's a serious one. Recognize it. Answer it. Secondly, maintain unembarrassed commitment to divine revelation. Maintain unembarrassed commitment to divine revelation. I've heard a lot about the scriptures. I'm thankful for that. Heard a lot about preaching. You're going to hear more. I was reflecting upon this in the past week. I was reading in my regular Bible reading and I came across, I believe it's Mark chapter 10. And Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, my words, divine revelation, they're his words. My friends, maintain an unembarrassed commitment to divine revelation first through a firm conviction of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Know not only what you believe, but whom you have believed. Know why you believe those things. Dear friends, found your life upon the word of God, the rock. Remember this, that Peter encouraged and he said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We're not following myths. He went on to say, we saw, we beheld the majesty on the holy mountain. He says, you know what's even better? The prophetic word. Read the word, love the word, be committed to the truth. Maintain an unembarrassed commitment to revelation Secondly, by making no, no, no concessions to the errors of the world. Ian Murray, in his wonderful biography about Archibald Brown, Spurgeon's successor, he tells a story about Archibald Brown in the middle of the downgrade controversy. Uh, and Archibald there, or maybe it's a little bit later, he's speaking with a man in the early 1900s. And this man with whom Archibald Brown spoke was a man who believed that because Jesus emptied himself, that therefore he was capable of mistakes. And he did this, of course, to court the acceptance of culture in the academy. 
Murray, reflecting upon this, said about this mistaken man, like many others, he had surrendered far more than he recognized. A generation of men were coming into pulpits who had been taught that the making of concessions to contemporary, quote, scholarship was the best way to retain the essence of the Christian faith. It's the best way to lose the essence of the Christian faith. The road to ecclesiastical decline and apostasy is paved on a road of one-way concessions. When is the last time the world's made a concession to the church? Would someone please tell me? This is why the old King James Version, which would delight the heart of some of my friends in here, uh, li I like this one better. They actually, Paul here writes, well, Paul didn't write the King James Version, but he says, <laughs> he says to avoid profane and idle babblings and contradictions of science, falsely so-called. What the world says about marriage, what the world says about creation, the perverse and upside down and sideways things the world says about sexuality. If you concede on these things, what makes you think that you shouldn't concede about Christ himself? Was Jesus figuratively crucified? Was he figuratively buried? Has he metaphorically ascended in glory? These things are those truths of first importance. Don't concede a single point. Dabney again says, The steps in the downgrade progress are gentle and slide easily one into the other, but the sure end of the descent is nonetheless fatal. He who yields the first step so complicates his subsequent resistance as to ensure his defeat. There is but one safe position for the sacramental host. To stand on the whole scripture and refuse to concede a single point. Come to clear recognition. Maintain an unembarrassed commitment to revelation. Thirdly, thirdly, we must respond to these things by fearless and faithful proclamation. Fearless and faithful proclamation. One of the best things that ever happened to me was when Rob Dykes and I were in our rhetoric class about 14 years ago, and I finished my first oral address. And Dr. Carrick sat back, crossed his arms, looked at me and said, well, that was chatty. <laughs> Preaching is not a chatty, conversational time of dialogue. It is the divine proclamation of the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must be fearless and faithful in proclamation with unwavering devotion to the Master. You remember the enemies of the cross knew, they knew that Peter and John were unlearned. They saw their boldness, and what was their conclusion? They had been with Jesus. They knew Him. We need to be fearless and faithful in proclamation with unfeigned affection for our hearers. To the preachers among us, let me encourage you, let me urge you, let the love of souls drive your proclamation. Yes, we love Christ, of course, yes and amen. But the love of souls, let your preaching be directed to penetrate the heart 
Let me plead with you. Do not tolerate a Christianity of non-application. One devoid of living power. And one that will be avoid, devoid, therefore, of powerful living. Be fearless and faithful in proclamation with an undistracted fixation upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we must do. There are so many other things that call for our time and our attention. And what Paul says throughout them all, and this is what you've heard all the time throughout this conference, preach Jesus Christ. Preach His cross. Now to preach Jesus Christ and His cross, this is to announce the whole counsel of God as it relates to and terminates upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. The incarnate one who came lived, suffered, and died for sinners. And I would say, woe to you, preacher, if you feed your flock with the husks of worldliness. Woe to you, preacher, if you give to your congregation the trinkets and baubles of pop culture. And woe to you, preacher, if you give to your people the drivel of critical social justice. Machen said, at the end of his book, Christianity and Liberalism, he said, weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions a hundred years ago, but with human opinions about social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problems of sin. He said, thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God and sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Brothers and sisters, the great need of our day is for God to raise up a generation and continue to raise up a generation of fearless, faithful, holy, humble men to preach the everlasting gospel. I was talking with a brother earlier. And he's like, what should we be doing about our church? I'm just a nobody. And I said, you know what the problem is with our churches? Pastors keep thinking they're not nobodies. Remember Saul. Even Saul was a good king when he was small in his own eyes. J.C. Ryle wrote a wonderful book recently published by the Banner of Truth. Reflecting upon the great preachers. Uh, I believe of the 18th century in England. And he describes the terrible plight of England in those days. We glamorize the past. Don't glamorize the past. And he talks about, uh, this, this chapter was turned to a little book that I commended to all of you, The Agency That Transformed a Nation. And as he talks about this, he says, the men who rose up were simply men whom God stirred and brought out to do this work. They taught one set of truths. They taught them in the same way with fire and reality and earnestness as men fully convinced of what they taught. They taught them in the same spirit, always loving and compassionate, like Paul, even weeping, but always bold, unflinching, not fearing the face of man. He would go on and he said, they would not sit idle till sinners offered to repent, but they assaulted the high places of ungodliness like men storming a breach. 
and giving sinners no rest so long as they stuck to their sins. I urge each one of you, either pursue that in your own calling if God calls you to it, or you plead with God to send men to do it. How shall we respond? Come to clear recognition. Maintain unembarrassed commitment to revelation. Be fearless in faithful proclamation. Fourthly, be diligent in covenant continuation. Continuing the covenant. One generation telling the great works of the Lord to the next. Houses filled with prayer. Children learning to pray those wonderful truths of the word of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Certainly, prefaced by our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray for the pulpits of our land and world to be faithful to our call. Pray for seminaries to remain faithful to their charter. Pray for a steadfast commitment to the word of God. One of the most chilling passages for me as a father in the Bible is that Horrible text in Judges chapter 2. You remember what I'm talking about? Another generation arose after Joshua died. They did not know the Lord or the works that he had done. Has anything ever more devastating been written about a generation? I would urge you, by the mercies of God, make sure it's not written about your generation. People fret, parents wonder what kind of lives will my children have, what kind of world will they grow up in, and sometimes we can get so caught up with the great problems out there, and oh, we need to change the world, we need to change the world. You know, if you would have asked J.W. Alexander, if you said, hey, J.W. Alexander, how should I change the world? Do you know what he would have said? He said this, if you want to change the very roots and hearts of society, the method which should accomplish this would be a national blessing. Such a method is domestic religion. Do you know what J.W. Alexander would say to you? You want to change the world? Then you gather around the family altar. And you worship God in your house. And you teach your little ones to name the name of Jesus Christ. And you teach them to love the church. And you teach them to take hold of all the privileges and responsibilities and benefits and glories of the covenant of grace. You teach them to love Jesus Christ. This is what we need to commit to mothers. Let me encourage you with this. As you nurture your children, as you teach them and grandmothers, you pray for your grandchildren, this is a powerful thing. It's one of the things that Dabney said is the most momentous work done on earth. Fathers, as you learn to lead your children and uh, teach them and be gentle with them and remember that God's gentleness made David great, your gentleness will make your children great, Remember these promises, children. Children, the spirit of the age for you is to rebel against your, ch- your parents. Turn away. Don't believe things just because your parents do. No, you should believe the things your parents do as they are consistent with the word of God. Don't give in to these things. Own the gospel for yourself. Recognize that the world seeks to destroy you. Be diligent, my friends, about covenant continuation. Fifthly and finally, what is the last response of the church? And this is preeminent among them all. We must embrace crucifixion. You must embrace crucifixion. 
This is the call of Christian discipleship. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. And if there's any place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul would comment and elaborate upon this, it's in that glorious text in Galatians 6 where Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast, accepting the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What does it mean? What does it mean for the world to be crucified to you? Have you ever thought about that? What does that actually mean? The world, this present God-defying age that has been tried and found wanting, has been sentenced to death. This world, by the divine judgment of God, has been affixed to a cross and exposed to the contempt that it rightly deserves. It hangs there before you, gasping for life and cursing those who have it. Now John Brown, John Brown of Edinburgh in his masterful commentary on Galatians said this about the world being crucified to Paul and to the believer. He said, in Paul's estimate, to do anything inconsistent with the duty of his Lord in compliance with the course of this world in order to attain its richest reward or avoid its severest punishment, to do that now would be as absurd as if to procure a favorable glance from the eye of a worthless, expiring felon on a cross. Let me apply it to you this way. Sisters, either look forward to a day where you would hope to be married or look back to the day that you were. You've gone through that enigmatic procedure of preparation, uh, putting on makeup and hair. I don't know how it takes so long. <laughs> but you do this. You have uh, the, the dress just so. Everything's in place. You then walk with your bridesmaids outside the church and find a worthless, expiring felon hanging on a cross. And you say, how do I look? Do you care? Brothers, you prepare a sermon. You've been praying and thinking and reading, meditating. You put the final touches on it. And you walk outside your study to the local expiring felon hanging on a cross and say, Will this offend you? Will you mind if I say this? Absolute absurdity. I want you to remember something that this truth cuts both ways, however. The world has been crucified to me. And I to the world, Paul says. I to the world. You know what I hear a lot these days? The world is watching. We should make this decision. We should do that thing because the world is watching. Let me tell you something. If the world is watching you, Christian, it is ultimately watching to do to you the same thing it did to your master. To scheme, to plot, to conspire, and to crucify you by the way you already are, if you've embraced Jesus Christ. 
The church must embrace crucifixion. And I ask you today, have you embraced the crucified one? You must embrace Jesus Christ. You must come to him. Bring your sins. Confess your failures. Put away, no, bring your rebellion that it might be subdued before the cross. Confess your wretchedness. Repent of your worldliness and come. What will you find if you come to this crucified Savior? You will find an awful, bloody, abandoned figure rejected by the world who has never once rejected and cast out a weary sinner. Not once. You will find one who in his utter depths of weakness accomplished the most glorious thing unimaginable. The redemption of his people. When you come to that Savior, you're not better than him. Embrace him. Embrace his cross. Take up his cross. Follow him and let the world watch all they want. Five responses from the church. Now finally and briefly, you might be thinking, okay, four tactics, five responses. How do we do this? So I want to close and look at the last few words from the apostle to Timothy. Grace be with you. Amen. We've looked at three things. The fourth here, a certain promise. You know what the promise is? It's the promise of grace. It's the promise of that everlasting kindness from the Father of blessing, who has made provision for His church through His Son, by His Holy Spirit. This is no groundless well-wish from Paul. This is the unshakable bedrock of His confidence that as Timothy holds fast to Christ and ministers in His name and guards that good deposit and avoids the nonsense that the church of Jesus Christ shall prevail following her head. He is certain of this because he knows the source of grace is the glorious triune God himself. And Paul, as all saints have known, knew something of the glory of grace. I've been greatly affected over the last year and a half reading Samuel Rutherford's letters. And one of the things he fairly regularly says Something of this variation. He says, and now a fig for all the moth-eaten portions of this world, which is a portion of bastards. He wrote it from exile. Why could Samuel Rutherford write such a thing? When if he would just capitulate, he could have honor, standing, notoriety. You know why? It's because he knew something of the glory of of grace that would come to a sinner like him, wash him of his iniquities and cover his nakedness. Do you know why critical social justice, wokeness, all of its related ideologies are so terrible? Do you know why it's actually worth your pity? It's because if nothing else, study them, think through these things, what you will find is that at its core, it is entirely and inherently legalistic. It demands bricks and gives no straw. It demands perfection and offers 
No forgiveness. It requires lament and gives no balm. It requires the shouts of condemnation with no means of atonement. Don't believe me? How many times will churches have to repent to the world? What's the solution? Just one. Reparations? Let me tell you, neither God nor the mob will be pleased with ten thousands of rivers of oil. But you see, the mob has nothing to provide to cover your sin. Only law, only pressure, only guilt, and only the new prophetic revelation of the oppressed. These ideologies are devoid of grace, my friends, because at root they're devoid of God. And if devoid of God, they're devoid of his son, whom he has appointed as the heir of all things, the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, in an address that James Lindsay actually gave at a conference in 2019 entitled The Great Awakening Conference, I would encourage you to listen to it. He gave an address, James Lindsay did, on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which Jordan Peterson rearranges to diversity, inclusion, and equity, and he calls it die. (laughs) At the end of his address, here's what James Lindsay said. A year ago, I stood up and said, they want a revolution, and we have to fight. And then I said, we're late to the fight. That was the last thing I said. We're late to this fight. That was a year ago. We are later. I'll stop there. Thank you. I couldn't help but feel great compassion for this man. Because unless he embraces the Lord Jesus Christ, that is as hopeful as he will become. He's right. We need to fight. We need to oppose false teaching. We need to refuse to play the games. We need to put away virtue signaling. We need to resist a downgrade. But dear friends, the battle is the Lord's. God will sustain his church. Now Machen said God will sustain his church, but he doesn't use theological pacifists to do it. He's right. But the battle is the Lord's. William Gurnall, as I bring this to a close, he said this, Perhaps some drooping souls find their hearts fail them while they see their enemies strong and they so weak. Let not these or any other thoughts dismay you. But with undaunted courage, march on and be strong in the Lord, on whose performance lies the stress of the battle and not on your strength or skill. What is my plea to you today? My plea to you today is you, servant of Christ in whatever capacity, let me plead with you. Guard the gospel of Jesus Christ against all assaults. But do so, striving with the confidence of divine grace. Dear friends, there is a king in heaven. And he's king of truth and he's king of grace. Stand for him. Abide in Him, and remember the battle is His. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are weak. And we are like those Ephraimites who would turn our backs in the day of battle. But we plead with you for courage. That as we put on the whole armor of God, and even as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that after we've done all, we would stand. 
And how we pray that you would give us grace to embrace, above all things, Christ, the crucified one, being willing to bear his reproach. How we pray that in our days, you would raise up a vast army of preachers of the gospel to bring forth the words of everlasting life to sinners even now abiding under your wrath. How we pray for the protection of your church against all assaults. And how we thank you that when we pray, we can do so with the confidence and knowledge that you have promised to protect and abide in her. Lord, forgive our failures. Forgive our fears. And help us to serve you with love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise together and sing our closing hymn, number 408, for all saints, number 408.
couple of announcements. Reminder that at 3.30, the question and answer session will begin here in the sanctuary. And also, I've been asked to ask the speakers to come forward, uh, the conference speakers, for a conference picture. Let us close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the victorious reigning King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all praise, honor, and glory. Father, cause our hearts to rejoice and be glad in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.